0: Welcome back to the Sophos Naked Security Podcast. I'm Anna Brading and I'm here with Sophos experts Paul Ducklin. Hello folks. Greg Fido-Iden. Hello. And Mark Stockley. Hello. And our wonderful producer Alice Duckett is also here. Hi. How is everybody?
1: We Hot. are excellent. I'm <laughs> using warm. the royal we there, of course. Yep, yeah, uh, currently hiding in a pillow fort surrounded by blankets. So it's sweltering in here and it's nice yeah. and sunny outside.
2: Very hot for a Well, I've, I've upgraded. I've decided that all I need is a nice big cardboard box to house my mic. Quite like when winter
1: comes, you'll want
3: those
0: blankets back, I'll tell you. I've evolved.
2: <laughs> I enjoy that you're using
0: a cardboard box, Alice.
2: I am. I actually probably need to return some clothes that I keep buying in this box. But for now, it's going to house my microphone. By the way, can I just say that we had some um, feedback on one of our posts on social media mm. saying that they hope that we are social distancing in our podcast. And I just want everyone to know that when we say we're in our pillow forts, we're not all cuddled up under a blanket, guys. Don't worry. We're in very separate homes, different counties, different... Area codes, we are very much social distancing. Yes, that's
3: why we use the word pillow forts, not pillow fort.
2: It'd be quite nice to all be in a pillow fort. Well, I look forward to when this lockdown finishes and we can all snuggle up in one pillow fort. No, I don't want to go anywhere near anyone. (laughs) I'm just
1: really concerned how, yeah, I don't want to be in a very warm environment with you chaps. Fine. (laughs) I don't know. I just think it's, I don't as a kid, you know, when you used to have like a pillow fort and so on, it was just a bit, a bit. Too close. Hang on, hang on. I've, I've mislaid my violin. <laughs> hang on. I just need oh. to. Do you know i Okay, maybe it's just me, but like, I have no, to really carry on. Do you know what? I'm digging a hole tell here. us I Tell us the sad away. story from your childhood. No, no, no. Go on, Mr. <laughs> Viola. Hey, you're a drummer. Go on. Could you do sad drumming? Well, no. can you? I, think you can, barely, I think you can. I don't think barely can. do, barely do any drum. kind of drum. Yeah. <laughs> yeah.
0: <laughs> oh. Should we get on with the podcast?
1: Yeah, quickly. Yeah.
0: So as usual, we pick the top three stories from the week to discuss on the podcast. Coming up on today's show, Duck's going to be talking about an Apple vulnerability. Greg's going to be discussing Octopus Scanner. And Mark's going to talk to us about a beef between a famous drug cartel member and Apple. But before all that, here's a quick roundup of a few other stories from the last week or so. The state of Arizona has filed a lawsuit against Google over the tracking of user locations, even after they've turned off tracking. State Attorney General Mark Burnovich said Google makes it nearly impossible to completely disable tracking by forcing users to dig into granular Android system settings. He said the company's location tracking is unfair, deceptive and against the Arizona Consumer Fraud Act. Arizona is asking the court to force Google to pay back Arizona profits earned through ads that monetize the data, as well as potential fines of up to $10,000 per violation. Google says it's looking forward to setting the record straight, commenting the Attorney General and the contingency fee lawyers filing this lawsuit appear to have mischaracterized our services. We have always built privacy features into our products and provided robust controls for location data. Remember Daniel's hosting? It was the popular host of dark websites that got hacked and wiped in March <clears throat> for the second time, taking over seven oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah,
1: the second time, yeah.
0: <laughs> taking over seven thousand dark websites with it. Now the database that has, has, sol- he,
4: has he come back?
0: No, but the database that was stolen in the attack has been posted online. Uh,
1: oh, no. again! <laughs> so, did it get Did that happen the first time round as well?
0: I don't know if it got if it happened the first time. The uh-
4: hang on, this is if this is Daniel's hosting. There, there might be some quite
0: exactly. Uh-
4: Illegal stuff in there. Yes.
0: So 3,671 email addresses, 7,205 account passwords, and 8,580 private keys for Onion Domains, which is a nice little gift for law enforcement, I think.
3: This is a very special interpretation of private and anonymous, isn't it? Yeah. (laughs) Yeah.
0: Not good. Um, the National Crime Agency in the UK has been trying out a new way to stop kids from being sucked into cybercrime. During May, if those of a certain age Googled the terms DDOS stressor or booter, then they might have seen an ad in their results that said gaming and cybercrime, booting is illegal. The ads link over to the UK's Cybersecurity Challenge, which is aimed at encouraging young people from all backgrounds into cybersecurity. A spokesperson from the NCA said they're targeting the ads at males aged 13 to 22 who are searching for the booter services or different types of remote access trojans. So uh, it's interesting. Do you guys think this would work? It's some no idea.
3: I think it's a great idea. Yeah. I you mean you'll go searching for? I want to get into booting. I want to get into DOS. I want to get into malware writing. Oh, I'll play video games instead. I suppose it can't do any harm. Yeah. But you can't imagine that the kind of person who'd be into that kind of online fun, as they think of it, wouldn't also be into video games anyway, surely. I guess the idea is that, that maybe they I can... I reckon there's probably a massive crossover between those two
4: things. Because you've, you've got to think, like, if you're, if you're just messing around with DDoS and stressors and things like that, it's, yeah. kind of, it's kind of gamey, isn't it? Not in the. Well, can we also
1: just the fact, state the fact that you were saying the person sat in front of the computer doing DDoS is not also going to sit in front of the computer to play a computer game? I mean, I just think computer users in general are probably have a higher probability of playing computer games, no?
0: Hold on. Why, what I you guess the idea is
1: that having in- a computer is a prerequisite for being a right? user of computer games.
2: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay, okay, hold yeah,
0: on. Why are we talking about computer games?
1: Is it not computer game adverts? No, don't so misunderstand this.
0: So the ads, so the ads are for if they type in DDoS stress or booter, then they get a, a message that says gaming and cybercrime booting is illegal, and then that then links them over to the cybersecurity challenge, which is.
1: Oh, I just heard the gaming and cyber. Oh, crime. I see. Okay, so the idea is that the here's crime. a better
3: sort of game to play, one that actually helps society rather than ruining it.
0: Yeah, exactly. It's like you were gonna, you were gonna ddos whatever website but actually what you could do is just take part in the cybersecurity security challenge
1: oh I have a, yeah then definitely that sounds like a great idea i mean anything that that lets people explore and learn and have that kind of fun because i mean ultimately they're doing ddos and stuff because they're enjoying it yeah and it's fun and it's a nice learning experience and, and so on. And again, you know, especially when it's young kids or teenagers that are still learning, you know, they're a bit anarchic. I mean, kids don't learn a lot of empathy until they get a bit older. And so, yeah, I think, you know, that's an awesome idea. I mean, I, I so when I was in, uh, when a young kid, there was loads of things like Hack This Site, which must have bounced up at about when did that start? Two thousand and four or something. And it was just a website where you could go and learn how to break into websites and and, and that kind of stuff, but do it in a safe way. And that mm. was great, and actually got me really interested in writing my own web applications, and how to secure them. So yeah, if it can guide people to see how stuff is broken and so on, but in an educational way, hopefully it can also guide them towards the fun of how to write more secure code and things like that. Yeah, it seems pretty cool.
2: Yeah. So what you're hard. saying
1: is that what you're saying is all that. uh
4: profiling of people that google does <laughs> is is worthwhile because now they can target a uh, particular age groups. so you can buy some ads from google and you can say i want i'm only going to show these ads to boys who are teenagers and looking for this kind of thing so it was it was worth it all along
1: I don't you're making exactly, me really uncomfortable mom. now because I totally don't support the whole profiling <laughs> thing. But I like end the end goal of the the app or the website of fun. So you're that's saying fine. the ends
4: justify the means. I think that's what you're <laughs> no, saying. I mean, the <laughs> end. Oh God. I really it's, okay. it's okay for Google to profile kids. You heard it here first on the Naked Security Podcast. Greg Fido hidden. <laughs> He's okay with Google profiling children. Fake news.
0: online. <laughs> <Don't>, I <laughs> <don't>, <laughs> help. make <them>. you poor Fido. <laughs> <laughs> Shall we move on? How are you enjoying your there, last podcast, Greg?
1: <laughs> <laughs> My last podcast is a free man as well, I think. we're going to get in trouble soon. Oh, dear. Thanks, everyone. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Doug, tell us what's been going on with Apple.
1: Well, this is a
3: fascinating story because it isn't a bug in an app or in an operating system, but a flaw in the sign-in with Apple process. And an Indian security researcher by the name of Bhavok Jane. He is a basically a full-time bug bounty hunter. I've struggled to get that out when I was practicing it. I said a big bunty, but that's not what he is. Uh, basically, he went looking at how the signing with Apple process works. That's where to log into website X, you actually do the authentication via Apple. So, Apple doesn't know your password to that side. It just validates that you're who you are, and then you get into the third party side. So, the third party side doesn't need to build their own authentication system.
4: So, so this is not sign in with Google or sign in with Facebook.
3: Exactly. Now, Apple was okay. a bit late to this party, as far as I understand. This only came out in iOS 13, I think, is where this debuted. But it's the same idea. Instead of trusting every little website in the world or requiring every little website in the world to build their own super secure authentication system, you trust one of the big guys to do it for you. And unfortunately, what this chap found was... If you like, I'll be careful not to call it explicitly a backdoor, but an unexpected a URL that wasn't supposed to be there that basically allowed him to skip past the password system. So basically what he found, my analogy is... <laughs> That's yeah, quite an
4: important flaw in an authentication <laughs> system It is when you yes, think about it, isn't it?
3: Yeah, particularly when the idea is that it's the one that you're going to use because, hey, I've already got an Apple account. They have (laughs) username, they have password, they have two factor authentication, they have zillions of dollars of scrutiny over this whole thing. It's better than some website that stores passwords in plain text. Well, in this case, he didn't need a password at all. And by analogy, this is what he found. So imagine you're doing air travel and you go online and you can buy a boarding card without proving who you are. You just give a name, you give a passport number, you get a Boarding card. Without that boarding card, when you show up at the airport, you won't be able to access the departure area. So the boarding card is like your initial, your sort of pre-authentication ticket. Then you get to those those uh, barriers where you put your part, you put in the boarding card, you put your passport on the on the glass plate, scans the photo, reads the chip, takes a photo of your face, checks your passport's valid, checks you're not banned from travelling, and if it's all golden, swish. The doors open, you go through, and then you can use your boarding card to get on the plane. And what this chap found, basically, he found there was, if you like, an undocumented scanner gate around the corner, if you like, where you could put in your boarding card. And then instead of putting your passport on the glass plate to identify yourself, you just showed your boarding card again and you were straight in. So he basically was able to use what you might call the pre-authentication step as a way of getting an authentication token that would then log him into a third-party site. So he went through the process. He just skipped the validation part completely. So a little bit of egg on Apple's face, but the good news is because this wasn't a bug in the apps they distributed to everybody or in the API in the operating system, Mac OS iOS itself, uh, it means Apple were able to fix it unilaterally on their side. So the good news is that you don't have to do anything. The problem kind of was resolved in the background without any harm done, fortunately. Also, nobody uses it, so it's fine.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I have to say, I, I, you definitely see Google and Facebook a lot more than you, you see Apple.
3: Yes. However, there are a lot of sites, Not, it's not ubiquitous, but uh, I went to Mac Observer, which lists sites that they're aware already supported, and it does include quite a laundry list of major sites. I won't go through them here, but there are quite literally dozens of mainstream sites. So it's still a bad look for Apple, and yeah. it's still a problem that the whole idea of this third-party authentication, like signing with Facebook, signing with Google, signing in Apple, in a way, it, it's it's a little bit a violation of when we say have a different password for every account because basically you using, if you like, one account to stand for all your other accounts. But the idea is it's, it's better to go with a big player with lots of money to spend on security who can't afford not to do it right than it is to go with every Tom, Dick, and Harriet who's trying to knit their own cryptography. Um, the good news is this chap is a bug bounty hunter. He knows and understands the rules. He was after his bug bounty. He actually got a cool $100,000 from Apple because obviously this is rather serious. And because he did what's called responsible disclosure, what it means is that he essentially avoids this becoming strictly a zero day where the crooks knew about it first. So he tells the vendor, the vendor gets a chance to fix it. And only after it's all sorted and the problem's completely solved, then he goes public. And even now, bless his heart, uh, he hasn't exposed the exact magic undocumented URL he found where he could bypass showing his passport. Uh, I presume he doesn't want people trying it, even though it no longer works, because that's just a waste of everybody's time.
4: I don't know very much about Apple ID, uh, but I was under the impression that it was actually Apple's attempt to sort of kick passwordless authentication into the mainstream a bit.
3: Is that correct? Yeah, my understanding is it's, it's, it's very similar to the whole OAuth idea. Right? Yep. you They're acting as an identity provider, and the benefit to the third-party website is the third-party website doesn't need to invest a whole load of time and money and effort doing authentication well, which is quite hard. Uh, The user doesn't have to create yet another account that they need to manage. They can use one that they've already got if they're Apple fans. And the benefit for Apple, which is the same as the benefit that they're trying to catch up, I guess, with what Facebook and Google do, is that there's now an incentive for people not only to create an Apple ID, but to keep it live because it's a cool way of, an easy way of secure way supposedly of getting into other sites so yeah i think you're right it's
4: but it's, if, if apple decided that it was going to allow people to authenticate themselves using say the fingerprints scanner on an iphone they could then roll that out to everybody that uses this apple id so suddenly you've got fingerprint access to any site that uses apple id as a,
3: as a way of logging in i imagine so i think at the moment I don't. I I only have iOS 12, so I don't have support for it on my device. So I haven't been able to try it out. Um, but I guess there's there's a I want to log in step, which is gives you your boarding card, and then there's supposed to be a step where show us your passport or equivalent ID. So whether that's a password, yes. an SMS code, a fingerprint, a retinal scan, whatever it is, the important part here is that that whole bit is what this researcher was able to jump over or sidestep. Yeah. So, yes, if you, if you, and it raises a thorny question, doesn't it? Of in the past, we've said to people, look, if you trust the site and if you think the site's well run, there's no real problem, particularly with a password manager, of having a unique username and password for that site. But The next best, or perhaps even the better thing, if you don't know how well the site is able to do the authentication part, which is notoriously hard, maybe even if you don't like Facebook, even if you don't like Google, even if you don't like Apple, maybe they are better than average at security. And you would certainly think so in general. Now, in this case, Apple was indeed found wanting, but I guess the flip side of that is they have a bug bounty program. They accepted this yep, report. Exactly. They responded to it quickly. Mm, so in exactly. a way, even though Apple failed, they kind of it's almost as though the proof of the pudding was in the eating. Sound like an Apple fanboy there, even though I'm not using my Mac anymore because of the hideous keyboard. Um, but I do think that Apple's response was a good one. That they, yeah, no, I they agree. It would be fixed great. It. It would be great if developers didn't make
4: mistakes, but they do and they always will. And so this is what security looks like. They have all the testing and QA that they do at Apple, but actually there's a reason they offer absolutely enormous uh, bug bounties, and this is why.
3: And I think that if you're not a conspiracy theorist, whatever the opposite is, you might argue this from the other side saying, well, imagine if this bug had existed in one or more of the third party sites that had decided to trust Apple instead. Just how quickly would they have been able to fix it? And would they even have attracted a professional bug bounty hunter, or would the crooks have found it first in those cases? I mean, that's a very open question. But I guess this shows, A, the value of bug bounties, B, the value of professional, responsible disclosure bug bounty hunters who don't prove how clever they are by just telling the world. And the fact that sometimes you can fix security problems without actually needing to push out an update to all your users, which is the,
1: the fortunate circumstance here.
0: Cool. Thank you, Dirk. Greg, talk to me about Octopus Scanner.
1: I mean, if I must. <laughs> um,
4: so so must. Is, is this, I'm going to be very disappointed if this isn't a scanner that finds
1: well, get ready is. to be disappointed. <laughs> <laughs> okay, uh, yeah, I, I, yeah. I can just skip this section. <laughs> pretty, pretty certain the octopus is coming from the the octocat uh, style of. Also, the whole idea that octopuses have like one was it one pair? Well, one pair of eyes, but multiple legs. I, they're just, it's one of those. giving it a fancy name. To Amazingly, try Greg, they have eight legs. Who would have thought? It does eight octo what tentacles. Anyway. Yeah. Yeah, well, you know, what's a what's a leg? Um, before we dive into that, <laughs> topic, <laughs> no, <laughs> let's let's get back to the cyber. Um, Google, no, what, what is yeah. a leg? <laughs> oh dear. Um, <laughs> let, let's assume that was a rhetorical uh,
2: question. Is that sort and of existential?
0: Vague idea. What is a leg? <laughs>
1: so,
4: yeah. Sorry, Greg.
3: Would you well, like, like to do? Find
0: out, find out. Do your story. Fine, 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 do
1: okay. your story. No, 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 no. It's fine. It's fine. Let's talk talk more about appendages. Um, okay, oh. so this is yet another supply chain attack. Uh, but this, of course, this in, in this instance, is going after open source software. So um, before we get started, let's just touch on what a supply chain attack actually is. They're actually, like, for bad guys, adversaries, these are their, like, ultimate dream. Because they let them turn a single compromise into multiple. You know, supply chain attacks are a one-to-many relationship. Basically, what it means is they find something that a load of people use, and they trust it. You know, an app, or in this instance, it's going to be some code, and they compromise. It and they watch as everyone then pulls that very latest version that's been compromised with their nastyware, and with that, you know, bringing along with it, uh, they get with the latest update. So, this is another one of those kind of stories. On March the 9th, uh, GitHub, which is a pretty pretty kind of popular online service for hosting software source code, and it's widely used by the open source software community, mostly because in the, in its infancy, they always made it completely free if your project was open source. So mm. it was like the de facto, it took over from, uh, I can't remember it's name now, SourceForge? Am I getting that right? Yeah. yeah yes, whatever yes, it was, it's going, history now. Whatever that was, that whole thing <laughs> I got left in the dust because of GitHub. Um <laughs> It's true, though, of. Anyway, so so GitHub on March 9th received a message from a security researcher, and they were telling them that they'd found a bunch of code repositories that were serving out malware. Um, testament to GitHub's security team, I think they call themselves, let me get the name right, the Security Lab. Uh, this is like one of those just... Textbook. This is exactly what you should do when you get a, a notification like that how you investigate it and how you publish the information. So, heads up, like, sorry, uh, hats off to GitHub. Bravo for their write up on this. So, they dug into the malware itself. And when they dug into it, they found that this was actually designed to find and backdoor software projects written with the code editor or IDE. Interactive development environments called NetBeans. Really uh, sort of common, well, back in the day, incredibly common Java uh, development environments. Still pretty popular, but not as popular as it once was. And what they do is they, you know, find any code that you're writing and they inject their remote access Trojan into the results that you're kind of creating. Um, So they're targeting Java developers. Um, It's important to note that the command and control servers for their remote access Trojan are no longer live, but it does look like this has been in circulation since, like, it looks like 2018. So let's try and describe this scenario and how this works. So a developer goes and downloads some source code from an infected project, and they build that project using NetBeans. They can to try and create whatever resultant software. So why, so why, the mal- would, they, why would they go and download some malware? Yeah, this is uh, and it's. <laughs> Why would they download malware? Well, I mean, let's hope that's not that was never the uh, their intent. Most likely, it was they went to a code repository for, and I'm making this up by the way, but let's say it's a a user interface framework. They just go and say, right, I want to write a user interface. I'm not going to write all that from scratch, so I'll go fetch someone else's code to do that. I'll pull down their code, and that'll save me loads of time. And it's open source, so I'm completely free to use it. And thus is the way of the world. And so, yeah, they might go and grab that project, and they go and start compiling it. But this malware hijacks the build process which is when you're trying to compile, create the resultant. uh, In this instance, it's Java archives. uh, And it puts its payload inside those, what gets built. So Um, the
4: the malware is inside the code you've downloaded from the repository, but the the people who wrote that
1: code... Aren't well, it's in the malware being in there. Is that right? Well, it looks like it's actually in the artifact. So, it, like, it's specifically targeting NetBeans project. So, it's okay. likely not actually inside the source code of the application, but oh. within the project file of NetBeans, which is to tell yeah. the IDE like how to build the environment, what's all yeah. the dependencies, blah blah blah, and you know the the various stages it needs to go to compile something. somewhere. You think no one will look. Exactly, and it's it's pretty smart. And this is clever because you know um, you don't know how why far and wide these these other projects are going to be. We don't know if this was where it started. It could have started outside of GitHub. Could have been anywhere. Um, but eventually, one of these projects made its way onto GitHub. But it's really powerful for a bad guy because it means that you know you, it can spread like wildfire, and it can be and it can spread pretty silently because it's not something like trying to make someone go and download something clearly malicious. You know, it's hiding away inside. Uh, what actually a lot of antivirus vendors don't really scan, like Java archives. Um, GitHub, they found 26 repositories hosting this malware, but actually they submitted some of the samples of the payload to VirusTotal and have looked at some of the results. And it's quite low detection even now. Like quite a lot of vendors, you can't, be det- can't detect it. I'm looking at, I'm literally staring at the VirusTotal results for one of them here, and you get a load of uh, AV vendors saying it just says unable to process file type. And that's what's really interesting about this attack vector that came to mind literally just as I looked at this virus total result, is that you know, Java archives, jar files, once upon a time were like really commonly used by malware because we all used to have Java, the desktop version, installed on like every Windows computer. It was like really common for Java applications and Java applets in browsers, so you'd have... Java installed on every computer, but you know it became a, a bit of a, a you know it was a major target. Most of the exploit kits, the most successful payloads, were always using exploits for Java. So it's kind of use in the desktop environments kind of disappeared. So a lot of these new vendors that are coming to the market with their security products and scanning files, jar files are kind of a forgotten file type. So you go and look through the virus type results. Tons of traditional vendors are in there, and like we're in there, and so on. But take our machine learning model, which is not trained on jar files; it's trained on uh, executable files types, .exes, DLLs, so on. So that won't pick it up. And that's actually, there's some other major, you know, uh, next-gen vendors not able to pick this up. So really interesting attack vector by the bad guys here, and certainly shows some level of, of uh, intelligence in terms of how they've tried to piece this together and what they were targeting. But I mean, GitHub and 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 even open anywhere that hosts source code has been targeted by bad guys like this for ages. You know, it's a public website. It's free to use. It's unlikely to be blocked by firewalls. Um, but also, you know. Uh, people just happily take open source code and they're not going to read every single line of it. They're not going to analyze every single piece of it. And so you can then start to get inside their application and then their code could be used by someone else. I think uh, Mark, before this call you are talking about some of the previous supply chain attacks we've had with like NPM. Yeah,
4: this is, yeah. this is where supply chain attacks happen now, I think. So I, when I think of a supply chain attack, I, I think about somebody breaking into a company and trying to modify their product. But of course, if that company actually goes out and includes a whole bunch of third party libraries in their mm-hmm. product you don't need to break into the company because loads of the stuff that the company uses are on places like github or in the npm in the npm repository or in the pip repository or in some linux distribution repository mm-hmm. or in the php repository or you know you get the idea uh, so so they're kind of outsourcing an important part of their security to those third-party vendors. And of course, what we've seen with supply chain attacks in the past is that if you use a third-party library, it's quite likely that that also uses third-party components. And it's quite possible that those third-party components also use third-party components. And you can end up with these crazy (laughs) dependency trees. And there's, as you say, nobody is going to go and look at all of that code. And honestly, Mm. nobody is going to pay someone to go and look at all of that code. The reason that you're using it is because you kind of assume that it does what it says it's going to do. Yeah. Well, One well of the many the eyes here is that even well, if right. you
3: do go and look at all that code, and even if you refresh it with code that doesn't have any malware in it. This is not an attempt to infect the products that a company makes, but an Mm. attempt to infect the product that they use to make the products that they ship. So you can say, oh, look, we found malware in the source code. Refresh the source code, remove the malware, let's recompile it. And you imagine that somehow compiling is this magic touchstone that isn't itself beset by all the same dependency problem. And rebuilding from fresh source code, as I understand it, Will generate you a brand new copy of the malware. Yeah. Which yeah, will infect the next the guy. Itself. Yeah. So it's a, it's a true virus as well as it, it delivers a remote access trojan, doesn't it, Greg? In most yeah, cases. Yeah, it does. So that not only do you pass this on to the, the, everyone who gets your code, even if they don't get it from GitHub, uh, you also open yourself up to surveillance and
1: everyone else as well. So it's a sort of double whammy. Yeah. And I think, Mark, you just said it, right? I think this is really true. This is going to be where like a lot of supply chain attacks now take place in, especially in the open source software kind of context, because, well, especially if you think of it, who's interacting with these code, with this code like this, who's using NetBeans? it's developers, but these are developers who have probably got, you know, either like, let's be honest, like a lot of companies I interact with, they often kind of let their developers run wild on their machines. They often don't install security products because it slows down their builds and so on. And so, you know, for a, for a- <laughs> adversary, you're getting a... <laughs> I getting don't a want, nice want my computer holds. slowed down while it's compiling this malware. Yeah, I'm trying to compile stuff. <laughs> and, I, and I can... Uh... Yeah, while well, I'm compiling malware. Yeah, exactly. I want to make sure that malware is built in record time. But that's and the you problem. you Greg,
3: you know from yeah. your support days, don't you, that the common thing that developers want to exclude from, say, on-access scanning with an antivirus oh, yeah. is nice. the whole development environment. Because mm-hmm. they go, oh, well, I that's open cool. my compiler a zillion times a day. I don't need to scan it every time because yeah. the development environment is trusted. It's the source code that I have to worry about and the compiled version. In fact, here it's not. It's actually the bit that, that they want to exempt from scanning that yeah. they
1: should be scanning. It's, and, it, and it's incredibly smart. I mean, if, if this this sort of smells to me of a pretty intelligent threat actor. Uh, I'm not going to even hypothesize who it might be, but it's it's really interesting to see, A, them targeting not the, the world's most popular uh, development environment, but still going after a pretty common one for enterprise use. Java will remain very popular in the enterprise for a long time to come now, just because of you know, the power of the JVM uh, and the availability of lots of skilled developers. I'd have right. said
3: widely used rather than popular. I think that's, I think, Mark, you put your finger on it there because this is not whether NetBeans is popular now for people to adopt it if they haven't been into Java development before. The place I see this being a real problem is a company that has some code, legacy code, that builds a product that requires a NetBeans development environment that's somewhere in their Build room somewhere where once in a while, whenever there's a bug fix needed in their code, somebody goes in, doesn't really understand the development environment anymore, and presses the "build me a new one" button. And because they've built a new one, then everyone assumes that it's going to be trusted because hey, they built it fresh from clean source. Yeah. So I think that maybe actually targeting stuff as you say that's widely used, uh, you don't have to worry about the popularity. In fact, the less popular it is. The worse you could argue it is because the less likely it is that somebody's to going found. to understand and love the build
1: environment enough yeah. to go and check for problems. Mm. Yeah. I mean, let's also mention the fact that you know, developers often have database credentials and access on their machines. They might also be hosted on, on networks that are isolated away from typical public internet access or have more stringent security. So yeah, all in all, fascinating, uh, fascinating vulnerability. And then again, kudos to GitHub for why what, what, what ultimately was a very interesting read. I'm trying to think of some good advice for people to have off of this. This is quite nerdy. So if you are a software developer, if you are writing code in NetBeans, um, drop into the GitHub security lab. So it's security Lab github.com because they posted the uh it's md5s i think looking at the length of the hashes but they found a a, a selection of samples that were the common ones they found across github so they've shared the md5s of those and shot two
3: five sixes in the, in the article
1: i'm staring on their article it definitely is uh, an md5 yeah they've shared cat cash dot dat underscore md5 and then cat dot cat so there's a list of so if you go into the article, you can see they've got cache.dat underscore and then what looks like a, an MD5 hash of the file. Um, it looks like cache.dat in, in that context probably what you'll look at. Um, throwing them onto VirusTotal as well. There's you know vendors like ourselves that have uh, engines that are capable of scanning JAR files and so on, so should be able to give you at least some decent results. Uh, and that's probably the best way to go. Go read the uh, the official re- uh, report from, from GitHub. Um, and I guess there's a, just a wider note of when you're using third-party code, uh, you know, bear in mind that just because you know it's widely used doesn't often mean that it's it's going to be completely clean uh, and some of that responsibility does lie on your shoulders so you should be using uh you know code scanning tools and anything that you can to sort of improve the security of your build environments um you know uh, github mentioned some of their their uh, available options as well um but there's tons of other things out there as well to, to analyze source code and look for these kind of uh, vulnerabilities
3: Greg, I'd also like to add, it's important to remember, because this is a problem we faced the last time there was a big attack like this, which was about 10 years ago, a Windows virus called Induck did much the same thing in the Delphi environment. What we found in Sophos support is that people would call up and say, I scanned this file with your product. It's definitely a false positive because I've got a fresh build straight from our developers. This is an internal app. It's, we didn't download it from outside. You must be wrong. And in fact, they basically had a typhoid Mary inside the organization. Mm. Every time they rebuilt the program, they were reintroducing the malware. So... Again, yeah, absolutely.
1: Actually, let's that, let's give a bit of advice Yeah, If you do get detections of malware within your own source code or applications like that, um, give it a little bit of scrutiny. Uh, either a conduct, you know, uh, interact with a security analyst or someone that can actually, or a malware analyst that can actually analyze the results. Because yeah, I, I think that's right. You would often make that assumption. Oh, this is just antivirus being false positive prone. It's I've compiled this. I've got the source code. It's all safe. Yeah, this kind of ramping up of side uh, of sorry supply chain attacks. Um, yeah, it does mean I, I would I would be scrutinising anything, any detection that's coming out of my source code or anywhere related to my build environments, uh, and I would not just make natural assumptions like, oh, well, it'll just be a false positive. You're going to have to dig in deep. I think I see yeah, we really didn't do it. get it from some dodgy site. We got it from our own developers.
0: <laughs> cool. Thank you, Greg. Mark. I am in a, in a twist to the normal proceedings. I'm going to ask you a question. Oh. <laughs> I know, right. What's a controversial? What's a drug cartel and Apple got in common?
4: Ooh. Cocaine? Shall I tell you?
0: Oh yeah, all right. <laughs> <laughs>
4: okay. We're gonna we're gonna I, cut that. I am so fired. <laughs> Apple,
2: <yeah. laughs>
4: the answer, Anna, is that they both make phones. Oh. I bet you didn't know that. Well I say make phones. They both sell phones would be a uh, a fairer way of saying it.
0: I so i'm just gonna throw cheaper, if i go to the drug cartel is it cheaper than going to the apple store
4: it is but oh. would you buy a <laughs> phone from a drug cartel let me explain but i'm gonna throw a question back <laughs> to you okay so what would you do if you were hacked
0: if i was it's panic. a rhetorical
4: question if- it's a rhetorical question you don't have to answer okay so anna i'm going to'm going to ask i'm going to throw it back <laughs> to you so Anna i'm going to throw it back to you with a rhetorical question. What would you do if you were hacked? Well, some people believe that should you uh, some people believe that you should be able to sue the makers of software for the damage caused by bugs in their product mm. and one person who seems to believe that is a Colombian gentleman by the name of Roberto Escobar.
0: Hmm. That sounds Mr. Escobar, especially, yeah.
4: (laughs) Mr. Escobar isn't happy with his iPhone, and according to media reports, he's suing Apple because he was hacked. Mm. Now, more on that in a second. First, we must address the elephant in the room. I couldn't help noticing that you couldn't help noticing the (laughs) surname of the
0: man in question. Elephants,
1: wasn't it hippos?
0: (laughs) You might this
1: class. <laughs> it's the hippo in the room. <laughs> I'm going to go back in my hole.
4: Sorry. There, oh. are, there, are, there are as many hippos in this story <laughs> as there were octopi in yours. Okay. Now you might be thinking, Escobar, I recognize that name. I was. And if you're thinking that. If you're thinking that. I was. Yes. Yes, you're right. You do recognize <laughs> that name. Roberto Escobar, who is nicknamed El Asito or Little Bear, is the brother of arguably the most famous drug peddler ever, the now deceased Pablo Escobar. Ah. Uh, but he is, don't make the mistake of thinking that he is just somebody with a famous brother, because he was actually pretty important in his own right, too. In fact, he co founded the Medellin cartel with his brother, and he was the cartel's accountant. And if oh. you're wondering if being the accountant for the Medellin cartel was a big job, let me reassure you that it was. At its height, I found this out yesterday, the Medellin had so much money that it used to spend $2,500 a month just on rubber bands to hold all its wads of cash together.
0: Well, that's a good fact. <laughs> that's
4: how much money. That's how much that kind money of they expenditure. Had.
0: <laughs> yeah. Wow. So
4: If you're an Escobar and you've got a problem with your iPhone, you don't just go to the nearest Genius Bar or phone tech support and ask to speak to the manager. No, of course you don't. What you do is you sue Apple for about $2.5 billion. And being an Escobar, you, you don't sue because you're having normal problems like your screen cracks too easily or your battery gets too hot. No. You sue Apple because, according to the lawsuit, a year after purchasing the iPhone X in 2018, Escobar got a life-threatening letter from a man called Diego and was forced to go into hiding. Escobar claims that Diego found him by exploiting a highly publicized bug in FaceTime's group FaceTime feature. Oh. Now you may recall in January, Duck will recall this because he wrote about it, but you may recall that in January 2019, which feels like a thousand years ago now, Uh, Apple temporarily disabled its group FaceTime feature because of a bug that Mm. allowed you to use it to snoop on people. And the exploit went like this. You call someone from your contacts using FaceTime. And then when their phone rings, you, you click add person and include yourself in the chat. Now that might seem a bit odd because obviously you're doing the calling, so you're already included in the chat. But this is a bug, remember? So what happens when you include yourself in the chat is it immediately opens a call with the other person so they don't have to pick up and answer the call. So Mm. you can just bug someone by calling them, adding yourself to the chat, and then you've got the live audio feed to their phone.
0: Although presumably it's it's quite obvious. They they can't be on their phone at the same time, or can they?
4: Well, I I guess if they're not picking up, then maybe they're not near their phone.
0: Not going to happen to me. I'm on my phone pretty much... That's all the time I'm awake.
4: So are you a drug baron?
0: (laughs) Well, Mark, I don't feel like it's an appropriate thing for me to be asked on this problem. Okay, okay. (laughs) But continue.
4: So anyway, Escobar says that the mysterious Diego used this exploit against him. And obviously he takes his security very seriously, probably for obvious reasons, given his uh, former line of work. And he claims that when he purchased his iPhone X, Uh, An Apple support employee assured him that the device was the most secure in the market and will never be vulnerable to any exploits in the future. And that turned out not to be true. Obviously, it turned out not to be true that there were exploits. It may also turn out not to be true that an Apple employee said that there would never be (laughs) any exploits in the future, because that doesn't seem like a very sensible thing to say to somebody. I imagine Apple would
1: be quite careful about not saying things like that. Um, but it also shows he didn't read the uh, end user license agreement, which takes you about 12 years to read once it, you get your own yeah. new iPhone. You're like, scroll, <laughs> scroll, 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 scroll. Or, as the rest of humanity does, just accept
2: mm. without
1: reading, right? Those are, those Paul are the,
2: the, doesn't. the, no, Paul <laughs> the end user work. license
1: agreements
4: that basically say you're on your own. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you you sort of, it it. users now you're on your you're
2: own. On if you know that Duck has pressed accept, then you can feel confident that someone has read it.
3: <laughs> it's true. Yeah, that doesn't mean that I think it's a great idea. It just means that I go, well, I've got this iPhone. I love it enormously. But what <laughs> am I going to do? Send it back? It's so shiny. looking at it. Yeah. <laughs> exactly.
0: <laughs> Sorry, it's, Mark.
3: It's all a calculated risk, isn't it? Now, as fascinating
4: as end user license agreements discussions are, <laughs> Uh there may be more to this story than there appears to be at first. Tell us, Mark. So this this may shock you, but it's quite possible this lawsuit is not entirely serious. <laughs> I mean, no, I mean, I'm shocked. Hold. Yeah. It is a real lawsuit. They a real lawsuit okay. has <laughs> in fact been been filed. Um. So so it's real in that respect. Uh, but it's it's quite possible that it, it, if if this were a frivolous lawsuit to drum up. Publicity. It wouldn't be the first one that Escobar has indulged in, uh, and it, it turns out, and this, uh, uh, it turns out that Roberto Escobar kind of sees himself as something of a competitor to Apple and to Samsung, and a sort of Robin Hood, Pablo Escobar, man of the people kind of way, uh, and he actually sells reconditioned, gold-plated Samsung Galaxy folds under the name Escobar Fold 2. Ooh. And according to the Next Web, which is one of them, <laughs> and according <to> the... according <laughs> Is that typing? Can I hear you? Are you Googling? Um, according to the Next Web, which is one of the websites that carried the story, uh, the next addition to the Escobar phone stable is a limited line of formerly damaged iPhone
1: 11 Pros, also <laughs> gold-plated, <laughs> of course. Sorry. sorry no. So he's, uh, he's, he's reselling iPhones? Yes.
4: Gold-plated. Gold <laughs> gold-plated nice iPhones. Box, in an nice okay. box. I say gold-plated. What I mean is it's got some gold foil stuck to it. Right. There's a, there's, a, there's a guy on YouTube who ordered some of these and, and shows you how easy it is to peel this gold foil off and, you know, a little bit of heat. And, <laughs> and it, 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 it's, not, it's not literally, it's not plated. I mean, I, I imagine the plating process would be quite damaging to a phone. Anyway... <laughs> His line seems to be that he's taking these companies down by undercutting them with cheap versions of their own phones. So why would you go out and buy an iPhone 11 Pro for, I don't know, what is it, $1,000, when you can get one gold-plated from Roberto Escobar for about $500? And the advertising for these things, you have to see it to believe it. And, And I didn't believe it, so I watched a lot of it. Uh, really? The advertising for these things is straight out of the John McAfee School of Sales. So it's just beautiful women in hookers. underwear. <laughs> it's, just, it's, just, it's women in underwear holding <laughs> phones in slow-mo, unboxing phones in slow-mo, smashing phones with hammers in slow-mo, and all with this deep voice saying, Samsung will not survive. So I don't know why you did of- so much research for this article, Mark. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, well, I, felt, I, I owed it to the story to be very thorough.
0: No one heard now- from him at all yesterday. Now it's clear. So that's it. So- every time your wife asks, <laughs> what are you doing, Mark? I'm doing research! It's research! Why are there so many scantily clad women on your screen? Research for my podcast.
4: <laughs> <laughs> I'm considering buying a phone. Now, if you are, if you are taken in by this advertising then i urge you to do a bit of investigation of your own before you hand over any money and i'm just going to leave you with this so one of the reviewers who looked at these escobar phones said uh the chances of so I, i'm paraphrasing the chances of getting your phone are so low you should consider your payment less of a payment more of a donation <laughs> so it's quite it's quite possible that the actual phone part of this you know so it's a lawsuit to get you to buy phones which that won't be delivered to you unless you're a reviewer. In which case, you'll get one that's had a bit of gold foil, gold foil stuck to it.
0: Sounds good. So wow. the answer
4: to your so the answer to your original <laughs> question is, they both sell phones. They're all, they're both the same phone. <laughs> they both sell phones. Phone. Yeah, they are okay. exactly the same phone. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah,
0: yeah. It's not very good advertising though. If he's selling iPhones, but he's also suing Apple for a vulnerability in an iPhone
4: oh but it's all subversive you see because he's kind of he's selling you an iphone but it's a much cheaper iphone than the actual iphone and so you can kind
1: of you get to stick it to the man
0: right yeah, yeah you get to stick it yeah, that yeah
1: you don't want a warranty you don't want repairs
0: i want gold. I mean, never, don't want never,
1: mind,
4: never mind <laughs> that the phone you're buying is a phone that somebody has already paid apple for <laughs> so, <laughs> Apple have already done quite well off that phone. Thank you very much.
1: Right, well. That's a great story.
0: Thank you, Mark. And on that note, it's the end of the podcast. Where can we find you on social media, Mark?
4: You can find me on Instagram at Internet of
0: Hens. Fido.
1: You can find me on the Twitters as at SecBug, short for SecurityBug. You can also find me on the Reddits as (laughs) SecBug.
3: Paul Ducklin. I am at DuckBlog on Twitter and I am at P. Ducklin on Instagram.
0: I'm at Anna Brady on Twitter and we are, of course, Naked Security. Thank you to those of you who have messaged us saying you voted for us in the British Podcast Awards. We really appreciate it. If you haven't voted in the listener's choice category yet, please vote for us. Um, we'll stick a link in the show notes in case you'd like to. Visit nakedsecurity.software.com for all the latest security news. And until next time, stay safe.